Apple presents Meet the Author. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest moderator, Jenny Brown, from Shelf Awareness, and tonight's guest, cartoonist and author of the book, Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made, available on the iBookstore, Stefan Pastis. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is very exciting to be in the Soho Apple Store. Stefan's going to start us off by reading from the very beginning of his book. Okay. A prologue that story-wise is out of order. It's harder to drive a polar bear into somebody's living room than you'd think. You need a living room window that's big enough to fit a car, you need a car that's big enough to fit a polar bear, and you need a polar bear that's big enough to not point out your errors, like the fact that you've driven into the wrong house, which, when it comes to cars and living rooms, is bad. I should back up. The story, not the car. Chapter 1. Blah, 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 blah. All right, let's get the boring stuff out of the way. My name is Failure, Timmy Failure. I look like this. My family name was once Failure, but somebody changed it. Now it is spelled as you see. I'd ask that you get your failure jokes out of the way now. I am anything but. I am the founder, president, and CEO of the detective agency I have named for myself, Failure, Inc. Failure, Inc. is the best detective agency in the town, probably the state, perhaps the nation. The book you are holding is a historical record of my life as a detective. It has been rigorously fact-checked. All of the drawings in here are by me. I tried to get my business partner to do the illustrations, but they were not good. For example, here is his depiction of me. I have decided to publish this history because my expertise is invaluable to anyone who ever wanted to be a detective. Just read the reviews. Invaluable to anyone who ever wanted to be a detective. But success did not come overnight for me. I had to overcome obstacles like these. My mother, my school, my idiot best friend, and my polar bear. And yes, I'm sure you have the same question everyone else does when I list these obstacles. Why am I best friends with an idiot? I'll get to it later. Oh, and I suppose I should say a word about the 1,500-pound polar bear. His name is Total. Total's Arctic home is melting. So he wandered for food and found my cat dish. He is now 3,101 miles from his former home. Yes, that's a long way to roam for a cat dish, but we buy good cat food. Sadly, my cat is now in kitty heaven, or perhaps the kitty badlands. He never was a friendly cat. But I still have the polar bear. Initially, Total displayed a fair degree of diligence and reliability, and thus I agreed to make him a partner in my agency. As it turned out, the diligence and reliability were a ruse something polar bears do, and I don't want to talk about it. I also don't want to discuss the change I agreed to make to the name of the agency, which now reads like this in our Yellow Pages ad. Total Failure, Inc. We won't fail, despite what the name says. And now I have to go, because the Timmy line is ringing. Chapter 2. The Candy Man Can't Because He's Missing All His Chocolate. The call is from Gunner, classmate, neighbor, and now just another guy missing his Halloween candy. I get a lot of candy cases. They're not headline grabbing, but they pay cash money. So I wake up my partner and hop on the failure mobile. I should say a word about the failure mobile. It's not actually called a failure mobile. It's called a Segway, and it belongs to my mother. She won it in a raffle. And she has set forth some restrictions on when and how I can use it. Never, ever, ever. I thought that was vague, so I use it. So far, she hasn't objected, mostly because she doesn't know. 
That touches upon one of the founding principles of Total Failure Inc., which I've memorialized in ink on the sole of my left shoe. Keep mom in dark. The only complaint I have about the failure mobile is its speed. If I ride it somewhere while Total walks, Total gets there first. That wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the fact that in between, Total naps. So it isn't any surprise to me that when I get to Gunner's house, Total is already there doing something that he frequently does when he beats me to a house. Now before I tell you what that is, let me just say this. First impressions are critical in the detective world. A client has to know at first glance that, that their detective is A, professional, B, classy, and C, discreet. All of this is undermined when the client's first impression of their detective is this. I've lectured Total so many times on eating garbage from clients' trash cans that I now believe he is purposely sabotaging the agency. Fortunately for me, by the time I knock on Gunner's door, Total has finished eating everything edible from the trash cans and is able to stand next to me on the porch. Gunner answers the door and escorts us to the scene of the crime. He points to an empty table by his bed. My plastic pumpkin, filled with candy, was right there, he says, while pointing at the tabletop. Now it's gone. I look at the tabletop. I can tell from the empty space that it is gone. He starts listing the candy he had in the pumpkin. Two Mars bars, a Twix, seven Three Musketeers, five Kit Kats, 11 Almond Joys, five Snickers, an Abba Zabba, and eight Hershey's Kisses. Gunner looks up at me. You getting all this down? Of course I'm getting it down. Candy gone. Let's start with the basics, I tell the client, like payment. I take cash, checks, and credit cards. I don't actually take credit cards, but it sounds professional, so I say it. How much will it cost, asks the client. $4 a day, plus expenses. Expenses, asks Gunner. Chicken nuggets for the big man, I say, pointing up at Total. Total roars, which looks intimidating, until he falls backwards and crushes Gunner's desk. That, I know, will be coming out of his chicken nuggets. I tell Gunner that I anticipate a six-week investigation. Lots of witnesses, maybe some air travel. I'll show myself out, I tell him. As I walk down the hall, I pass his brother Gabe's room. Gabe is sitting on his bed, surrounded by candy wrappers. There is chocolate smeared all over his face and an empty plastic pumpkin on the floor. Always on the lookout for clues, I make an important note in my detective log. Gabe, not tidy. Thank you. Can you tell us about those chapter headings? Yes, uh, I try to title the uh, song, the uh, different chapters in a way that adults reading the book will get the references. So for example, there are three or four uh, Bob Dylan songs. Um, there's one chapter that's called, uh, You May Find Yourself Behind the Wheel of a Large Cadillac. So uh, talking head song. So I don't know, it makes me laugh. <laughs> it made me laugh too. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was curious, Stefan, since many people in the audience, I'm sure, know you from your Pearls Before Swine cartoons. Um, what has cartooning taught you about writing a book like this? When you do a comic strip, you have um, only three panels to get your point across. So it takes your writing to a different place. You have to strip it of everything that's not essential, particularly adjectives and adverbs. And it makes you write in such a brief way that when you then get um, this to do, you realize the value of words a little bit more. And so you're not maybe as flowery in your language and you only say what needs to be said. So it's sort of a forced uh, economy and it helps when you do a novel to have that. 
You've also said that you like to try to identify your characters with one word. Is that something you were able to do with Timmy Failure? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, yeah, for the most part. I mean, with, with pearls, I do it more. Like, rat is mean, pig is dumb, uh, goat is smart. Uh, Timmy is um, clueless and arrogant. So he, he's, he's two words. Um, but usually I can. Yeah, I think so. But he's also really sympathetic, Timmy is. I think his, I think his personal situation makes him sympathetic. Um, he, he only has one parent, his mom, and he has only one friend, and um, not too many people love him, and he lives mostly inside his own head, and he's a little bit different than everybody. So I think all that put together um, makes his arrogance bearable. Um, so anyways, that's how I thought of it. Well, and, and the way that you've combined the pictures with the text, the reader actually gets to know more about Timmy than he reveals of himself. Can you talk a little bit about that tension that you create that's there? That's interesting. Yeah, I suppose that. So it's really hard when you do a book that has uh, a term I, I just learned probably from you, <laughs> an unreliable narrator, um, meaning a narrator you can't trust. So if you're trying to tell a story and you have an unreliable narrator, you got to get across key facts but he can't tell them to you. So he has to tell you what he sees, and then you have to hope it's so obvious, like the thing with Gabe, not tidy, that I can convey what I need to convey to you. I mean, one of the problems I had in the book was I would go through each chapter after I was done and make sure Timmy was wrong as to every single thing he saw. <laughs> so I would purposely have to mess up his view in case he accidentally got something right. Well. I think the, probably the relationship that fascinates most of us the most is Timmy's relationship with Total. Can you talk a little bit about how Total evolved? Yeah, so Total is um, his business partner, and um, Total's relationship to Timmy is dependent upon how you view Total. Total is either a product of Timmy's imagination or Total is real. And if you look at him as real, the story's a little happier. And if you look at him as a product of his imagination, um, I think you feel a little more sorry for Timmy because you see how creative he has to be to just get through his day. So um, the book is written in such a way that you can take total either way. You can view him as real or you can view him as just a product of Timmy's imagination. Well, and it's interesting too because some of your secondary characters also either play into the support of Timmy and Total as a friendship, if you will, and others kind of don't really weigh in. Right. I mean, his mom definitely knows he has, uh, at a minimum, this imaginary friend, so she's, she's not going to hurt his feelings. She will play into that, and um, some of the other characters do the same. So, yeah, it doesn't mean he's real, though. It just means that they're supportive of anyone who has this crutch to get through life. So, yeah, I think that's the case. Now, would you say that you identify with any one of your characters? I Timmy? do. I, I identify with Timmy. I mean, I think Timmy has a lot of me as a little kid. I mean, I was somebody who um, lived inside my head for the most part. I mean, I still do, <laughs> I think. So um, I feel for Timmy. But I was also his best friend, Rolo, who's obsessed with grades and worries himself sick. Um, so there's part of me in him, too. I mean, I think there's a little of me in all the characters. But I especially identify with, with Timmy, you know? One of my favorite 
moments in the book is when Rollo turns into kind of a bobblehead. You show him as a bobblehead because he's anticipating Timmy bringing their score down at school. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> nobody wants, nobody, you know, in the school when you got the uh, group test and you all got one grade depending on your joint effort. So uh, Rolo has to keep a 4.6 GPA. And when Rolo gets Timmy in his group, uh, Rolo passes out in his chair. So uh, paranoid that his GPA is going to be uh, ruined by Timmy, which it is actually. <laughs> so he was right. Yeah. Timmy makes little designs when he gets a Scantron form. Instead of using it to fill in the answers, he makes mountains or he writes Tim. <laughs> so that doesn't do well for their score. And will you tell, talk a little bit about his, um, his nemesis at school and also as a detective? Yes. He, his um, enemy is Karina Karina, um, named for a Bob Dylan song. And she is unlike Timmy in that she's brilliant and she has a detective agency of her own and um, so Timmy absolutely despises her to the point that when she shows up in an illustration in the book uh, Timmy blocks out her head with a big black square uh, like you would a witness in a witness protection program <laughs> he doesn't want to bring any attention to her um, because he despises her so so much and I think Rallo's the one who actually Names her first in the book, if I, if I recall. Yes, he slips. Timmy tries to also not tell you Karina Karina's name. He calls her uh, the evil one for a big part of the book. She whose name shall not be uttered. Uh, he has a lot of names for her. And then Rolo finally slips and says her name. And then Timmy feels compelled to tell you who this, this girl is. So, uh, yeah. And it turns out, actually, Karina Karina, there's nothing wrong with her. She's completely sweet and nice and doesn't know Timmy's alive and couldn't care less. So... I always wanted to write um, an antagonist um, that wasn't really an antagonist. An antagonist that doesn't know the protagonist is even alive. I don't know. That just made me laugh. Well, and the, the way we find out how sweet she is is that you actually include some journal pages. From oh, her. yeah. He steals, he, steals her, uh, he steals her diary from her backpack. And you see this little girl who goes home every night and writes in her diary that she's just waiting to get some alone time with her dad, who's always off at work doing something. And in lieu of spending any time with Karina Karina, he buys her various gifts. Um, and you see how, how much like Timmy she kind of is, sort of alone. Um, so, yeah, that was fun. And how did you pace the actual layout of the book? In other words, you, there are some moments where, I mean, you really have to have the art exactly where it falls within the yeah. text. So, how so I, I would, it's this is a very, um, for any of you that are writers, this is a very strange hybrid because when you write, you write, and you draw, you draw. So this is a weird interplay between the two. So what I would do is I would write, and when I hit a place that was good for a drawing, I would just put a little parenthetical note to myself, and I would say, uh, okay, uh, Timmy drives Cadillac through wall, make sure total in back seat, glass everywhere, uh, you know, whatever. But, um, and then I would continue writing. And when the chapter was done, I would go back and illustrate it. But the disadvantage of that is um, sometimes I would forget really what I had in mind for the drawing. So sometimes in the book, I would change that up, write, and when I got to a drawing, I would draw it right there and then return to the drawing. So either way breaks the rhythm. So I never quite got that perfectly down. But uh, yeah. And let me say too on the structure, um, I, don't, I do something that probably nobody else does. I do almost no outlining. So the, the very first time I wrote Timmy, um, I, I went 70 pages, and I had no idea where it was going. And I realized when you do a novel, that is incredibly uh, dangerous because you can end up uh, lost. 
And so I did a skeleton outline. And the way I did it was almost like a movie script. I made sure I was where I wanted to be at the quarter point, the half point, the three quarter point, and the end. And then everything else that happened between those um, was fine, as long as I got to where I wanted to go. But my outline for the book would have fit on two index cards. So that's probably, I'm guessing other authors don't do that. Well, I find it fascinating because when, when you're working with a strip, you're, it's a very confined space. So to kind of let yourself get lost must have been a different experience. Yeah, you know what the hard part was? The hard part was um, when you do a comic strip, when I'm done with a comic strip, like a Pearl strip, I can hold it up and I see the totality of the work. So I can see how the beginning goes with the end and I can see the rhythm of the writing. When you write a novel, I never figured out how to do that. So, for example, if I was writing and I had done 16 chapters before that over the last two weeks, when it came time to chapter 16, 17, when I sat down that day, I would reread the whole book and just to get the rhythm. And that's okay in the first third. When you get to the end, it means every writing day begins with two hours of reading, which I, other people can't do that. But it's the only way I could get the rhythm down of the writing, like where I was and where each character was, there's got to be a better way to do that. But that kind of um, contradicts the way you've talked about your work, because don't you start kind of in the morning trying to be in that very zen place? Yeah, I can get, so I, I do these very weird things. Uh, um, I go to a dark room when I write. Um, I turn off all the lights except for the light of the computer screen, and I light incense, and I drink coffee, and then probably most strangely, I play music incredibly loud out of the speakers of the computer, um, really loud. Um, and I can't write to anything but really loud music. And these are playlists that I've chosen carefully. Um, but I like that rhythm of the music. But while I'm doing that, I'll read those chapters. So it's all part of the same process. And then hopefully an hour into that, it starts to flow. But you know what's funny? When I get stuck, totally stuck, um, the music is off. I always find, I've, without thinking about it, I've, I felt like I couldn't do anything right, and I turn off the music, and then I really get stuck because I'm, I'm overthinking how to do it. So I almost have to step back, relax, blast the music again, get another cup of coffee, and go. It's a very, very weird process. That is fascinating, though, that you can actually substitute the reading when, when that's where you need to be right. to get to your rhythm. Right. And go on from there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how did you come up with Timmy's voice? I mean, because with the cartooning, you have set characters that you know very well. Right. So how did Timmy's voice come to Timmy's you? Timmy's voice, some of you may know this. There's, I had two inspirations, one of which you'll surely know, the other you may not. One of them was the Gervais character um, on the British version of The Office. And one of them was a character named Ignatius Riley, who is in Confederacy of Dunces. And what they have in common is they're both um, sort of pompous, uh, know-it-all people who really are sort of uh, losers. So um, that is what Gervais calls and what I call the blind spot. In other words, the distance between who they really are in life and who they think they are. And the wider you make those two things apart, the funnier the character is. Does that make sense? Like, for example, like Chaplin, to me, the reason Charlie Chaplin is funny is he dresses like a gentleman. I mean, he thinks of himself as a gentleman with his little bowler hat, but he's a, he's a bum. He's a tramp. 
And so or, Laurel and Hardy, they think of themselves as studious. They're going to do really well that day, and they're just two idiots. So the blind spot is always the key. And so I just wanted to make a character with a blind spot. And that's, I don't know, the birth of Timmy. Well, I really want you to tell your Charles Schultz story. Do you mind telling that story? Okay, I will tell it. So Charles Schultz was my uh, cartooning hero. And I always wanted to meet him. And I was working full-time as a lawyer in San Francisco. So I read in a little newspaper article that every day Charles Schultz um, got an English muffin at a little cafe by his ice arena in Santa Rosa, California. So my wife was from Santa Rosa, and I asked her, I said, where's the ice arena? I'm just going to take the day off of work and chance it and hope I can meet my hero. So um, she gave me directions, and I drove up north for an hour, and I got to the ice arena, and I sat in the cafe, and there was nobody there, nobody at all. And so I waited, and I waited, and an hour passed, and I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done, because uh, he's not going to show up. And sure enough, at the end of the hour, this guy with white hair walks in the other side of the cafe, which, by the way, looks which very weird because we're the only two people in the cafe, and I haven't even ordered any food. So I'm just sitting, waiting for him to finish his food. And when he's done, I walk up to his, uh, to his table. And in the worst uh, opening line I've ever used, I said, uh, Hi, Mr. Schultz. Uh, my name is Stefan Pastis. And... I'm an attorney. <laughs> and his face turned white because he thought he was getting served with a subpoena. <laughs> so uh, then I said, well, but I also do, uh, I draw. And he said, oh, sit down then. And he, he took the newspaper off the chair next to him. And he gave me an hour of his time. And at the time, I was just a lawyer. I wasn't a cartoonist. I wasn't syndicated. And uh, that was a great moment. And little did he know that I would turn out to be the first person to, to write a Peanuts animated special, the first one after his death. I wrote um, Happiness is a Warm Blanket, Charlie Brown, which was on Fox on Thanksgiving. So um, to go from that to that was such a gigantic, unreal, how did I get here sort of moment, you know? Like a David Byrne song. Yes, exactly. Well, we're going to turn to you all now and see if you have any questions. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming out. Um, just two questions, actually. When you were reading the excerpt, I kind of got the idea of sort of uh, almost cutaways, like you would see on a show like 30 Rock, New Girl, some of these shows. So question one is, did you have that at all in mind when you were kind of coming up with your format, drawing and writing? Uh, the second question was, um, how much time growing up did you spend in the library, was that like a regular spot for you? Which I, it's kind of unrelated, but kind of not, so. Uh, the second one's easy, yes. Every summer my library had those reading programs where if you read 30 books, you got this gift, and if you read 40, you got this. So I always tried to max that out. So I was a regular library goer. Um, and the cutaways is fascinating because um, I have up on my bulletin board where I write, it says, uh, it's a rule, it's a list of rules for if a strip is funny. And one of the rules is, does it have a cutaway? Um, a cutaway is an instant laugh for what could otherwise be a weak joke. So if you can use them, and by cutaway I mean uh, you have the characters in a diner, you have the characters in a diner, uh, you have a whale knocking at the front door. So you've, sh you've shifted up the scene. And it's just an instant way to get humor in. Um, and if you can get a good joke and a cutaway, you're even better off. So that's something I've always done. So that's exactly how I think when I write. Um, 
Uh, I always think, in fact, if I could have controlled that better, I would have. You know, when, I, when you said Gabe, not tidy, when it's a Gabe, not tidy, I tried to get that on its own page so you literally didn't have a sentence before it. I wanted that to be at the bottom of the page and then you turn it and you see it. And that is the equivalent of a cutaway. So I'm all about the cutaway. <laughs> um, hi. Um, hi. Well, I know with your work with Pearls Before Swine, you get a lot of good reviews, a lot of people like it, but at the same time, you occasionally get the critic or the person who has a problem with it. So I was wondering what your experience is with responses to Timmy Failure in terms of negative reviews. Or did you find it was the same vein as Pearl's or was it a different experience? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Okay, so knock on wood, no, I haven't seen any negative reviews yet, but uh, I assume they've got to be coming at some point. But the, the interesting part is between the two of them, because I've done Pearl's for 12 years, you can say anything you want about it, and I've heard it before. In fact, I kind of know when someone comes up at a book signing and they start to say something, I can almost finish the sentence. You know, my wife, my wife loves the strip, and you know what she does it? The Crocs. She doesn't like the Crocs, right? Yeah, she doesn't like the Crocs. I know where they're going because I've heard it all. With Timmy, I'm much more uh, sensitive. Like, if someone were to rip it, it would definitely hurt more. <laughs> I, don't have a, I don't have a thick skin with Timmy yet, like the strip. So I assume it'll come in, in time, but it's just so fresh, and I, you, know, you don't know how it'll be received. So um, yeah, a little more vulnerable. So be nice if you review it online. <laughs> Thank you. My question has to do with the music that you play while you write. Yes. What type of music are like, what do you see as a pattern of types of music that you use when you're writing? It tends to be a lot of, um, U2, Arcade Fire, Mountain Goats, uh, Regina Spector, uh, Van Morrison, Pink Floyd, uh, Killers. Uh, um, it, it's, it's not uh, uh, poppy. Um, no dance tunes. <laughs> um, so occasionally, like, I'll put in a Rage Against the Machine <laughs> just to wake myself up. I'll put it at the start of the playlist to get me going, and then, um, then I'll run all the others. If, if I did by count, U2 would have probably the most. Um, I've written to them more than anybody. But it's, it's, I'm convinced, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm convinced that humor is rhythm um, and that the music is obviously rhythm. And the music puts me in the place to write the humor, if that makes sense. And I'm surprised that everyone doesn't write humor that way. But uh, that's how I do it. Hi, I, uh, I, I've known Stefan since the sixth grade, so I, my, the question I really want to ask is, who's Corinna Corinna? But that can be for another time. Uh, but as far as influence goes, um, I, I, my, my older child is, is seven, and I've read a couple of Encyclopedia Browns to him. I'm wondering, is this the anti-Encyclopedia Brown as boy detective? Were you thinking about that? So two things. The person that asked that question is somebody I haven't seen in... 20 years. <laughs> he is from my from my high school. So that is very cool. Hello, Chris. How are Hi, you? Hi, Stephanie. And then and then the second point was, what did you ask? What was the second? I got so, so Encyclopedia Brown. Oh yeah. I, in fact, I took um, I bought a big bundle of Encyclopedia Browns and I ran through them beforehand to get sort of the rhythm of how that works. Right. And that was exactly it to sort of turn that on its head. Okay. That was part of it. But the other thing I did was I bought a lot of. Um, books with Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. Right. I wanted to get that um, staccato sort of sentence structure, like, you know, too tough for the room, you know, which I could do. I could say everything but, like, uh, abroad. He never referred to as a woman mm -hmm. as abroad. A right. <laughs> Short of that, um, I could sort of use that language he uses, and I don't know. So 
It was a combination of the Sam Spade thing and the Encyclopedia of <laughs> Brown thing, which is sort of an odd combo, right. I know. Well, yes. I was thinking about, you know, you, you, you've done some great parodies of, of Family Circus and, you know, other strips. And I always used to think you were making fun of, just making fun of Family Circus. And I realized there was a great admiration, too, for what Keen was doing. So is there kind of a mixture of parody and homage in yeah you know what's funny about parody to parody something it's it's a compliment in one sense because what it means is that thing has to be so popular that i'm parodying that i know you know it if i choose it for parody it means it it is out there so number one that part's sort of a compliment and number two um i like the family circus people i mean i'm friends with I was friends with the dad, and I'm now friends with the son. And I went with the son to on USO missions, like to Iraq and Afghanistan. So that might surprise some of you that are Pearls fans that um, we're actually all friends. And every time I parody them, they take the original strip and they put it on their wall. So they, they have a great sense of humor. They're wonderful. So, yeah. But you didn't answer the Corinna Corinna question. What was the Corinna Corinna? Oh, was you it? wanted to know if it were based on anyone you knew. Remember all those smart girls we had in our class whose names I don't want to mention? Sort of them. <laughs> yes. Hi, Stefan. Um, my question is, a uh, big fan of the book, by the way. Are, are we going to hear more about Timmy and Total in the future? Yes, the second book has already been written. Uh, there's just a few changes left to go. I wrote it this summer. Uh, and to give a little teaser, uh, Timmy, who is in a perilous place towards the end of the first book in terms of school, uh, I think he gets kicked out of school in the first chapter <laughs> of this one. I just wanted to shift up his whole, his whole uh, life. Um, and so there's a little more turmoil involved in uh, book two. But yeah, it's written. Hi. Um, I was just wondering the idea for Timmy Failure. How do you decide when you got the idea that you didn't want it to be a comic strip, that you wanted it to be a novel instead? Boy, that's a great question. Um, well, the simple answer is because my well, a person who is a book agent called and said, I'd like you to write a book. <laughs> and so I was thinking of something I could do as a book, and Timmy fit that. But um, I, I don't construct the two the same way. When I do a comic strip, I did it without any real characters in my head. I just wrote jokes. And the characters will reveal themselves through the jokes, if that makes sense. It, you'll, you'll tell a joke, and the joke needs a smart person and a dumb person. So the, those characters will force themselves into appearing. With Timmy, it was more top-down created, meaning, OK, I got a kid that's a detective. I want him to have a partner, because I know that there's, this isn't a joke. This is 300 pages. So there has to be, you know, I, I need to know who's going to be in that world a little bit more. Does that make sense? Those are two different ways of creating. One I would call top-down. You start with the characters. And the other, you just start with the joke. So Jeff Kinney, who gave me advice for this, um, told me, you know, he starts with the jokes, which to me seems like a really hard way to write, but obviously he's hugely successful. He will write 400 jokes. And then he will find a plot that can incorporate the 400 jokes. So um, that's a very unique way to write. But uh, yeah. I had no idea. Crazy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please, another warm round of applause for Stefan Pastis and, of course, our moderator, Jenny Brown from Shelf Awareness. <laughs>